UNFTR. I gotta say, I'm actually looking forward to getting back into this. I'll second that. Way more interesting than I thought it was going to be. Right? I mean, Karl Marx is one of those people you hear about your whole life, but you don't really learn about in school. It's actually kind of shocking that it's taken him this long to unpack Marx. Uh, hey, guys, we're actually going right? to... Um, I mean, the dude literally created socialism. We've been dancing around him for three years, but we're finally here. Well, okay. Well, the, the thing is... Carl freaking Marx, the big guy. Can't wait, Max. Let's go. So, funny thing. We're actually not there yet. In fact, we're not even touching on Marx at all in this episode. This series is never going to end, is it? Mm, suddenly, I'm not as excited. This is a major podcast and we call it UNFTR. I'm fucking the Republic is the name that is not safe for work. We hate Reagan, Milton Friedman, Rupert Murdoch, and Matt Gates. Talk socioeconomics, global markets, politics, and race. Max, the host is basic and admits he likes Miami Vice. 99 produces, also she's a vegan and she's nice. Many Faces is the genius on the board behind the glass. Together they produce this unbelievable fucking podcast. 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 And uh, yeah, by the way, my name is Tom McGovern, and just know that I'm a hired gun. So if you're gonna hate somebody, please don't let me be the one. Now you have the details of the show and the entire cast. So listen to this unbelievable fucking podcast. So listen to this unbelievable, this unbelievable, so listen to this unbelievable fucking podcast. On the Republic is brought to you by over-caffeinated members, Alfie and Flash, Awesome A, Asshole, Pre-X, Cindy S, David MJ, Eric Wagner 101, Goat, GWookie of Ohio, Joa, Cringy, Marco F, Maria from PR, Matthew, Michelle H, and Nathan E. In part one of Understanding Socialism, we noted that GWF Hegel's work had a profound impact on a young Karl Marx. Hegelian dialectic, the study of thought and reason by synthesizing contradictions into a higher truth, is the beating heart of Marx's critique of capitalism. The conflicts that he sought to resolve were material as opposed to the abstract, that which Hegel sought to reconcile. In this material setting, Marx studied the contradictory nature of the interests between labor and the capitalist class. He believed them to be so extreme as to be inevitable and that numbers, strength, and political will favored the working class. The rift would worsen over time lead to a global popular uprising and eventually to what he called the withering away of the state. This ultimate expression, the formation of a utopian socialist society, informs our vague notion of communism, a moneyless and classless society. Interestingly, when attempting to draw upon non-material influences, his intellectual predecessor Hegel arrived at a different conclusion, one that favored monarchical rule. Both we're wrong. Blasphemy. Stone him to death. Off with his head. Stop it. Monarchies died at the hand of nationalism. The working class never united across national boundaries. The state has only gained power, far from withering away. Why then do we give so much credence to the philosophies and prognostications of these thinkers? How can there be so many competing visions of socialism? Is socialism a moral and ethical discipline, or is it a political and economic one? We'll add these to the ever-deepening layers of questions surfaced in part one that were more practical in nature. 
Questions regarding the value of labor, what drives a market, foundations and formations of capital, property rights, and ownership. What's the through line in all of this? Well, in our capitalism episodes, we demonstrated how our views of capitalism, the very definition of it in fact, has changed over time. New thinkers, new nations, technology, innovation, changing cultures and attitudes, all contributing to the evolution of thought, the river that Heraclitus spoke of. And whether it's Adam Smith and capitalism, Karl Marx and socialism, Kant's transcendental idealism, Mill's utilitarianism, Dewey's pragmatism, or Goldman's anarchism, there's one constant. Every system and the intellectual behind it strives to organize society in a framework, a framework that incorporates the practical aspects of human nature and provides a positive outcome for the greatest number of people. The great philosophers are engaged in a conversation. Their ideas echo over generations and weave their way into new modalities. We speak of Hegel because his process and way of thinking informed Marx. Karl Marx was offering a critique of an economic system formulated by Adam Smith and Francois Quinet. Socialism was conceived 50 years before Marx even put pen to paper. So to understand the evolution of socialism, we have to contextualize the various epochs through which it evolved, understand the motives of those who drove each iteration, dig into the external factors that altered the nature of it. Wars, famines, movements, attitudes, so we have to do more than just offer definitions and examples. We have to weave a larger narrative that contemplates all of these factors and sets them in historical context. So let's start at the beginning. Chapter 4. A Better Way? The Enlightenment, known as the Long Century in Europe, opened the human mind to the possibility of moving beyond the feudal structures that dominated society throughout history. Declared the age of reason, intellectuals began investigating life through an epistemological lens, reason and science over faith, a Cartesian approach to philosophy that placed the human mind and experience at the center of exploration rather than God. Prior to the Enlightenment, Feudal structures dominated the landscape of empires and burgeoning nation-states, most of which remained tied to monarchies, religious control, or a combination thereof. But in the 17th and throughout the 18th centuries, a newly formed intellectual class was beginning to think differently about how to organize society. A new economic structure based upon markets gave rise to the theory of capitalism. Advances in agriculture allowed for populations to grow after being decimated by famines and plagues in centuries prior. A middle class was emerging, with artisans and merchants occupying new roles in society. And then there was a new world. Across the ocean from where this intellectual revolution was occurring, a new world that held the promise of secular and democratic rule. And this is where our story begins, at the dawn of the 19th century. In the new experiment, it was the time of Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe, intellectual products of the Enlightenment, political products of an anti-monarchy revolution, forged in blood to be sure, but brimming with possibilities. And as the new world matured and broke free of the shackles of the European patriarchy, so too were the citizens of Europe agitating for something new. For them, it was the time of Napoleon, King George III, the emperors Alexander and Nicholas in Russia. The patchwork of Germanic states were still organized in feudal territories, each owing allegiance to blood rulers and aristocratic systems. 
This was prior to the epic orchestration and consolidation of Germanic states under Otto von Bismarck, which would come later in the century. But it's in these territories that a new breed of philosopher would build upon Enlightenment principles and begin to fuse them together with possibilities that abounded as markets connected humanity at a pace never before witnessed in human history. It was the height of Hegel, the German philosopher who inspired Marx's material dialectic. But it was in France where the true roots of socialist theory emerged, and it was a businessman from Wales who made one of the first practical attempts to implement it. Again, timing matters. We're speaking loosely about the early 1800s. Critically, just prior to this period, there were two revolutionary moments that reverberated the world over, the American Revolution first and the French Revolution a decade or so later. I bring this up because there are those who believe that early socialist roots can be found in the Jacobin movement and brief ruling tenure during the French Revolution. While there are traces of socialist theory, the Jacobins were a political force first and foremost. So while there's crossover in some of the desired outcomes, such as secular rule, equal rights, and universal education, the Jacobins favored strong central authority and were notably light on economic policy. I mention it because the French Revolution is sometimes tied to the birth of modern socialism, but I see it more as a cousin than a parent. One of the difficulties of distilling any sweeping construct such as socialism into even a multi-part series is in determining which of the vast number of theorists to include. In each, we find remnants of prior intellectuals and eras, some small innovations and some profound ones that fill out the mosaic of thought. Most texts consider three men that we'll cover in a moment as setting the roots of what we would consider socialism. But since everyone is building on ideas that came before them, there are two figures in particular that should be in the conversation. Milanese aristocrat Cesar Beccaria and British intellectual Jeremy Bentham. We've spoken of both of these men before. Beccaria is most known for his book On Crimes and Punishments, which proffered the idea that criminal justice should be preventative rather than punitive and suggested myriad reforms that remain hallmarks of jurisprudence to this day. But like many other great intellectuals throughout history, Beccaria was also a noted economist and a social theorist. He was the first to write that the quantity of a good had an inverse relationship to its price. In other words, the theory of supply and demand. He also wrote extensively about tariffs and trade and their effect on behavior. And in just these two examples, Beccaria had a massive impact on economics and the law. Regarding the latter, luminaries from Voltaire to Thomas Jefferson lauded Beccaria's work. Now, importantly, Beccaria wrote early enough to influence Bentham, who was far more productive and lived a good deal longer than Beccaria. Bentham not only wrote on criminal justice, he contributed vital work on taxes, welfare reform, separation of church and state, trade, policing, democracy, and more. He was an infinite well of inspired thought that challenged establishment thinking throughout Eastern and Western Europe. He closely observed the uprisings in Russia and the French Revolution and was considered to be one of the most important public figures of his time. And today, he's best known as the founder of utilitarianism, in fact, coining the term. Utilitarianism is essentially a moral theory that can be applied in the political, economic, and carceral realms. And it basically holds that any action that demonstrates a positive social good is just. An early example of greater good theory, basically. 
So why these two? Out of scores, if not hundreds of truly remarkable Enlightenment thinkers, why are Beccaria and Bentham so relevant? Especially since they were most productive at the latter stages of what historians consider to be the Enlightenment. Well, I think that's part of it. Beccaria and Bentham were the most productive at the moment the Western world was transitioning from the Enlightenment to the modern era. So in many ways, they were the products of all the great thinkers who came before and the ones that were handing the baton to the next generation. Remember that monarchies and organized religion were still clinging to administrative power and lording over quasi-feudal economic structures. All of this was crumbling during the Industrial Revolution, the Second Industrial Revolution actually, and the political upheavals in Europe and across the pond. So here we have two radical intellectuals promoting democratic thinking in every realm, from policing and incarceration to representative government and welfare. They were beginning to think in systems, seeing the relationship between economic conditions and behavior, to view economic justice as a responsibility of the state through sponsored welfare, guaranteed employment, fair labor, and trade practices. They understood the interconnectedness of social, economic, political, and legal disciplines and how they related to the construction of moral and democratic societies. All of this dramatic historical stuff was just feeding into them. The founding of America, the crumbling of monarchies, growth of industry, surging inequality alongside the creation of a middle class, wars, famines, abundance, revolutions, secularism. It was a dizzying time. All of the structures that had guided empires for centuries were disintegrating at once. Market economies opened the world to new economic possibilities. Democratic rule was challenging authoritarian monarchies. New classes were emerging, so figures like Bakari and Bentham were grappling with these implications, imagining new social, political, legal, and economic constructs that could manage the change, and attempting to reorganize society in ways not contemplated since the time of Aristotle. So as the world entered the 19th century, a new breakthrough was imminent. UNFTR is also sponsored by overcaffeinated members Nathan Surst, Nettie Hugger One, Pete M, Rob Nasby, Rodrigo G, Ryan F, Sultan, Specker, Terry C, The Younger PDX Squatch, William N, W. Jeremy D, and The Memory of Nettie McGee. Chapter 5 Socialism Takes Root from the Seeds of Revolution. The Second Industrial Revolution and the Revolution in France set the stage for the birth of socialist theory. In everything we discussed so far, especially at the turn of the 19th century, we see how intellectuals like Beccaria and Bentham were assimilating these revolutionary inputs into moral and ethical frameworks that informed new theories in economics, politics, and the law. And together, these theories informed new constructs for society writ large. But at the core, there were two main constants, the state and class hierarchy. So in many ways, the next big breakthrough was to take these new frameworks to the next logical step. And in this, we see the roots of socialist theory, one that challenges the last two vestiges of enlightenment thought and drives us into the modern era. The idea that all these advances might themselves supplant the traditional role of the state and thus lead to a new paradigm if not elimination of class hierarchies altogether. That's the fundamental shift introduced by Henri Saint-Simon and Charles Fourier of France 
and Robert Owen from Wales, considered by most to be the true intellectual progenitors of socialist theory. To introduce us to this trio, I want to bring in the work of Michael Harrington. So Harrington was the founder of the Democratic Socialists of America, who was a major left-wing figure in the United States. He was an author of 18 books, including the one that we'll pull from titled Socialism, Past and Future. It was his final one. Quote, Fourier and Saint-Simon had unhappy personal exchanges with the upheaval in France. They wrote as the Industrial Revolution was taking off. Owen was a factory owner, and Saint-Simon might be said to have been the first philosopher of industrialism and, for that matter, the first historical materialist, with his emphasis on the underlying importance of the economic in social and political theory. Both of them greeted the new technological world as a means to their utopian ends. Fourier is the exception, the one of the three who was not that enthusiastic about industrial progress. Yet, he was far ahead of his time as a thinker who made an almost Freudian definition of what socialism would be, end quote. Harrington is making an important distinction between the Jacobins, Enlightenment thinkers in the vein of Jean-Jacques Rousseau and other economic theorists such as Kinney and Smith. They were the first to view industrialization, markets, and economic mobility between the classes in a societal construct that might inevitably, with the right inputs and under the right circumstances, evolve into an egalitarian society that would rid the world of centralized rule and class distinctions. In fact, it was Saint-Simon who first proposed the idea of the withering away of the state. As Harrington also notes, however, Fourier had his suspicions about the burgeoning merchant class, something that would echo in Marx's critique a few decades later. Here he is in his own words. Quote, Are merchants alone exempt from the social obligations imposed on the other classes of society? When a general, a judge, or a doctor is given a free hand, he is not authorized to betray the army, despoil the innocent, or assassinate his patient. Such people are punished when they betray their trust. The perfidious general is beheaded. The judge must answer to the minister of justice. The merchants alone are inviolable and sure of impunity. Political economy wishes no one to have the right of controlling their machinations. If they starve a whole region, if they disturb its industry with their speculation, hoarding, and bankruptcies, everything is justified by the simple title of merchant, end quote. So right away, we can see some of the seeds of thought that would germinate in Marx's works. Mistrust of the merchant class, an organic movement toward a stateless society. And we'll get into Owen in a moment, because as I mentioned earlier, he was the first to put these theories into practice. But I want to make another distinction between these early theorists and where Marx would eventually land. Saint-Simon, the more optimistic of the two Frenchmen, was critical of the bourgeoisie, but supportive of industrialists and financiers, the ones who leveraged the means of production and made things. As Harrington posits, quote, How can one man inspire both the banking industry and the socialist movement? End quote. He continues to suggest that it was Saint-Simon's followers who squared the circle by saying, quote, If government was now to be replaced by society as defined functionally, then the critical question, what is society and who are its functional leaders? For Saint-Simon, the answer was industrialists and bankers, in contrast to the coupon-clipping bourgeoisie, end quote. Again, we're at the beginning stages of socialist theory when old structures were beginning to break down and new leaders were inspired by secular potential rather than pre-enlightenment deterministic thinking. 
every idea was groundbreaking and held potential. But we can also see that even these early thinkers faced the same queries we raised in part one regarding ownership of production, generation of capital and investments, the role of governance, and so on. As we continue to traverse the landscape of socialism, we'll periodically allude to adjacent but no less important movements that either inspired socialism or were inspired by it. Just know that passing references to such important milestones and movements is not intended to diminish it, just to help us stay focused on the task at hand. So among the tributaries, such as utopianism, utilitarianism, and anarchism, it's important to recognize that feminism was a dominant corollary of most authentic socialistic movements. This is particularly true in the case of our three progenitors. As Fourier proclaimed, quote, the degree of feminine emancipation is the natural measure of general emancipation, end quote. Even more than Fourier, the Saint-Simon movement came to embody the whole of the new socialist movement as encapsulated in the words of George Licktime, who wrote, quote, Socialism was a faith. That was the great discovery the Saint-Simonians had made. It was the new Christianity, and it would emancipate those whom the old religion had left in chains, above all, woman and the proletariat. But if Saint-Simon and Fourier represent the intellectual foundation of socialist theory, willing to challenge feudal society structures, nobility, and norms, then it was Welshman Robert Owen who gave rise to socialism in practice. So let's talk about Paradise Lost, Robert Owen, and a place called New Harmony. Robert Owen was an exemplary member of the newly defined merchant class, rising through society as a successful businessman. His experience as a benevolent employer led him to, as Harrington notes, quote, try to convince the British and American elite that social justice was a pragmatic investment. During the very hard times after the Napoleonic Wars, there were widespread misery, unemployment, and, as a result, fear of revolution. The cost of caring for the poor outlays that had been taken at considerable measure as an insurance policy against a French-style revolution in Britain, rose as the wartime prosperity ended, end quote. Owen did have a weakness as perceived by the ruling class, however, and that was his atheism. This shut him out of much of the upper echelon of society and contributed to his own radical transformation from good-natured elitist to working-class champion. Owen took his fortune to the United States to establish one of the earliest models of utopian socialism that we can point to. Now, don't get me wrong, there were multiple attempts throughout Europe and even some in the United States. But what Owen was able to construct due to his significant personal means stands as one of the ultimate tests of faith in socialist doctrine. In 1825, Owen set roots in Harmony, Indiana, a village that was home to a small Christian group. Setting himself up as the guardian of the community, Owen guided a handful of followers through the establishment of a new constitution and a number of communal governing councils designed to put economic, political, and labor decisions into the hands of the members. The experiment failed within three years, and Owen was forced to give up the community, at which point he returned to Europe. But in these three years, enough historical information and context was gathered as though in a human laboratory to dissect the benefits and downsides of a community organized in such fashion. As the Socialist Alternative Organization notes, quote, by turning the community into a voluntary association, a very different sort of social arrangement came about. 
Those who came over to New Harmony were a mass of pauperized laborers, deprived of work in the midst of an agricultural recession. To many forced into criminality, these layers had none of the social commitment that Owen had expected, but instead sought unemployment relief, turning the community less into the utopian paradise Owen foresaw and something more akin to a soup kitchen, end quote. Now, I want to go all the way into the future for a moment to highlight something that we covered in our series on the presidency of Bill Clinton. Remember that one of the features of the so-called New Democrat playbook was the attempt to turn every struggling laborer into an entrepreneur. The experiment was an abject failure, and it continues to be, as demonstrated by the ongoing effort of organizations like the Clinton Foundation, who still believe, despite all evidence to the contrary, that everyone wants to own a business. The vast majority of working people are looking for steady, gainful, and if possible, rewarding employment, not the risk and upheaval associated with entrepreneurship. It was a lesson that Robert Owen learned the hard way in the 1820s. Moreover, Owen's attempts to inculcate the community with his own personal views on atheism only turned many of the community against him. So the whole thing fell apart in rather short order, despite the communal environment, freedom of movement and expression, and financial security blanket from Owen. I wanted to end on this example, and the next section will include a similar one just a half century later to demonstrate a few key points. First off, Marx was a student of all this activity that inspired his work one way or another. The New Harmony experiment, among others before and during his time, would inform his views of utopian socialism. Some might be surprised to learn that the man so closely associated with this vision actually took a rather dim view of the attempts to organize communal spaces and utopian societies. This is where we see the rational and scientific, if not anthropological, intellect of Marx. Marx understood something more about human nature than those who had come before him and was able to synthesize this understanding into his approach. Harrington puts it perfectly, quote, Marx, the student of Hegel, knew perfectly well that the means are themselves the end in the process of becoming. By changing the definition of how one gets to socialism, you change the definition of socialism itself, end quote. What Owen and other revolutionaries failed to understand about the nature of revolutionary change is the groundswell, the process, the catalyzing events required to inspire the masses and move them to change their own circumstances. It's why Marx is so important today, even if he misread the outcome and perhaps the speed and totality of capitalism's momentum and agility, its ability to transform over the decades and do just enough to keep the masses in check and prevent uprisings. Marx knew that societal transformation couldn't and wouldn't be thrust upon even those who stood to benefit the most from it. It needed to be bottom-up, not the other way around. So that's where we're going to pick up next. The groundwork has been laid, the foundation set, and in the next episode, we enter the heart of socialism and Marxism to examine the life and impact of one of the most important people in human history. And here endeth part two. It's the end of the episode where we used to do show notes. Now we just talk through a few things. Reflect on what was said or what we should have done instead. Oh, post-show musings. 
Manny, I hope you keep in that yawn. Did you catch a little bit of that? Her mic was just to the side, but you moved it in for the for the close of that yawn. It wasn't on purpose. I concluded with a really energetic part two before show post uh, show musings and just caught just a little frame of a, I'm tired. Of a yawn. <laughs> I know. Now, tell everybody why you're tired today. Are we in post-show music? We're in post-show music. Oh, I was expecting the theme to play, but that doesn't happen. <laughs> uh, I went to the dentist and I'm just tired. Two separate things. Two hours, though, at the dentist. Yeah, I got there early and was hoping that I just happened to leave my house early, which never happens. But I was like, maybe they'll take me. And then I sat there for 45 minutes and watched a like... The oldest woman on earth take another oldest woman on earth to the dentist. <laughs> and they sat next to me and I want to be like, there's so many fucking chairs here. So just full disclosure, 99 had all of her teeth removed. I advocate for that often. I think you should, when you get your grown up teeth, they should take your teeth out mm-hmm. and make dentures. Mm-hmm. And then people wouldn't have to worry about gum disease and infections and brushing your teeth like in the same way. I actually think it would help a lot of people. Can I tell you something really disturbing? Sure. One of my daughter's uh, best friends uh, snapped a picture of her holding a baggie of all of her baby teeth. Oh, my in mom one has one little them. plastic bag. And there's something so fucking unsettling one. about seeing them all in one baggie. You want to know it's more unsettling? What? Mine are mixed in with the dogs. Why? Why? I don't know. Why? I don't know. It was just like what? what? You know, because puppies lose baby. They have baby teeth too. Oh my god! So like our first dog, we got. I think we rescued her. I guess, but <laughs> she was a puppy. And this was years ago, and my mom kept the teeth, and they're mixed in with my teeth. I can't. Like, baby teeth and dog baby dog teeth look uh, remarkably similar. I would a hundred percent wear my teeth in like a little necklace if I knew which were mine. Oh my god! I don't even know what to do with that information. It makes me question uh, ninety nine and one and 101's mama. Uh, like what's going on there? She's just cool. It's just her own thing, huh? She said, "Yeah, these are your teeth." I'm sure my sister. I'm sure one hundred ones are in there too. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. The, the dog is a child. Is she waiting for something like the ability to like, they'll discover one day, like you can clone? children through their baby teeth and I don't think she would want to clone us I mean do do you have your dog do you have your kids first haircut like in a bag uh yep same vibe Mm. it is I wouldn't mix it in with my uh I don't think it was intentional I think it just sort of happened (laughs) it was like oh all the teeth are there yeah exactly (laughs) the tooth fairy used to hook me up well listen uh let's talk Marxism about this your all the dental surgery that you had done today again ripped all your teeth out was covered right by insurance um, yay my my cleanup or what, what do they call it cleaning was covered my fluoride treatment was not <gasps> you know bum, bum, bum. I know they put fluoride directly on my teeth I thought of you <laughs> I was Thank like you. wow Max would really you Bring know doesn't even cells. want me drinking fluorinated water That's right and I'm like I'm like uh, what do they call it for like like coke like mainlining it mm-hmm. yeah so yeah. i'm like mainlining the fluoride intense. they put it on and i way have too to much fluoride. i had it was disgusting like she was like okay enjoy your last moments of nice clean teeth because i'm gonna put all this stuff on it it's gonna make them sticky i'm just gonna take all this extract from coal and stick it all over your teeth it looks like i didn't brush my teeth finally it's like kind of wearing off in but it was like in the, the give gaps. me a good smile give me a oh, you look great yeah but before it was gross because you could <laughs> see the fluoride and I can't eat or drink for six hours. She was like, 
listing the things I can't eat. And one of them was pretzels. And I was like, this is the only fucking snack I have at the office. That's a, a joke that sticks with me from listening to Stephen Wright's vinyl album when I was little. Wow. I had an entire box of Oreos before going to see my dental hygienist because I have a crush on her. There you go. Oh, okay. I don't know why I remember that. Strange. Well, um, I would say there's nothing socialist about my uh, my about your visit today. My visit, no. Yeah, just trying to tie it in. No. Mm. Uh, I got X-rays. Is that socialist? All my <laughs> teeth live in the same mouth and share the same things. Yes, that might be communism. Yes. <laughs> I love that. Okay. What a great analogy. You're welcome. Okay, part three, 99's mouth. Yeah. Yeah. Got 99 teeth. 99's communist mouth. Yeah. You commie. I you honestly pinko. think I'm probably communist. Except I want to be a dictator. So I want everyone it's else to be. kind of the opposite. But I want them to be communists, and I'm the dictator. Uh, so I want to be North Korea. Technically don't. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I get it. I get it now. Yeah. Yep. When I look cute in that haircut? Um, oof. I really prefer the long blonde curls, if I'm being honest. Fine. We have a lot of great books for book love, and I don't want that to, I don't want that to be brushed under the rug here. I'm going to go through it really quickly. Anything that comes up in the next episode about the, not anything, but a little piece of what comes up in the next episode about the Russian Revolution, by the way, is from an old college text that I have is called Revolutionary Russia 1917 Second Edition by John M. Thompson. We've used it before. Yep. Uh, Capitalism, Socialism, Democracy, of course, by the great Joseph Schumpeter. Uh, Critique and Praxis by Bernard Harcourt. And of course, The Illusion of Free Markets by Bernard Harcourt. We're going to be dipping in and out of that. I'm using Harcourt more for context. But it, it's him that actually introduced me to Bakaria and Bentham. And um, so I'm very grateful to that because that, that wound up being really important. Uh, as we'll get into the, uh, the later stages of the series, we've got The Bending Cross, the biography of Eugene Debs by Ray Ginger, The Communist Manifesto, of course, and Das Capital by Marx, Socialism Past and Future by Michael Harrington, The Life and Death of Leon Trotsky by Victor Serge. And Natalia Sedova Trotsky, that's right, his late wife. Uh, Ethel Rosenberg, An American Tragedy by Anne Seba. And we'll probably add some more when we get there. But in case anybody's wondering what's taking me so fucking long to get through this, because we're probably going to take another week off before getting to part three and uh, put some topical stuff in between. It's getting through all of these because I'm just, I am consumed by the, the subject and loving every every minute of it. There's also a lot of resources here that we have listed uh, on the in show notes and on the website that you can dig into if you're interested in any of this stuff. Anyway, having a blast, loving putting this together. I hope you're getting some some real stuff out of out of this series. Next one, we'll go into. Let's see, we're gonna pick up sometime around the real productive era of Marx. So we're gonna get into the latter half of the 19th century and probably work our way up through the Russian Revolution. That's my guess. So we've got about 70 years to cover there. After that, I'm thinking we'll move over to the United States. That picks us up at a really good time just prior to the Great Depression and uh, then maybe round it out. You know, clearly you could tell I'm probably adding one in here. Uh, We'll probably round it out with some general thoughts of modern day socialist theory, 
the practical applications of it and failures of it and things that we think are socialist but aren't socialist, you know, kind of just pulling it all together into a more modern context. Uh, and then maybe some sort of epilogue about where we go from here, how we how we get out of this. So you can already tell that this probably puts us close to when I take vacation at the end of July. Um, so we're going to take our time. That definitely takes us, I'd say. Does that take us past? Like Mid-August. Does that take us mid-August? You're taking weeks off. You know what would be really neat then is I. it would be ideal to spend those weeks uh, we're going to go away two weeks this year um, to spend that time Talk working about on the, the bourgeoisie. How oh, bougie indeed. Well, that's uh, summertime, man. Gotta, you got to work to live, not live to work, man. Some people can't. So you're bragging. Uh, no, that's true. I'm definitely bragging. I'm definitely bragging. Um, but uh, we have people in our own company that take uh, way more time. Mm. Are you subtweeting me? Mm-mm. <laughs> like, Hardly. You even you work you. when you're fucking sleeping. Well, that is true. I know. I can't help Brain's it. Brain's always going. So that's it for uh, for right now. Socialist girl summer. Yeah, girl. Okay. What? I love that. It should really it's be like a that. socialist day summer, so we can be inclusive. Okay. Fun. As always. Oh, this is a full episode. Mm-hmm. As always, unfucking the republic. Is edited and arranged by the great sound design maestro, Manny Faces. It's produced by the loving and warm and kind, but all powerful, omniscient, omnipotent 99 sitting across from me. It's usually lovingly produced. Yeah. You changed the order. Okay. I'm Max. Are you I'm, sure? You sounded unsure there. No, I am. I'm, I'm Max. Max. I'm Max, the host of the show. I write stuff and then speak. And um, any original music, I think. This one, I think the beginning of this one was the Gilbert and Sullivan intro. Uh, is done by the just the incomparable Tom McGovern. Blowing up Tom McGovern. He's a hired hand, just remember. That's right. All the things you need to do to support us, if you are so inclined, can be found at unftr.com. So that's it. And in your butt. All right. See you later. Bye. Nothing is in my butt. Not even a caterpillar. It's a centipede. centipede.